BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. Remember the other day we were telling you about this radically breakthrough development in the field of nuclear fusion where they had had an ignition, that means a self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction. Even though it was incredibly short, it was also incredibly powerful, and it was the first real breakthrough in this ability in the lab, something that was confirmed in three different peer-reviewed papers. And at the time, I was trying to explain to you that this is huge news long-term, because if this can be done in a longer form, and it can be harnessed the way we harness nuclear fission right now, you have the potential to solve essentially all of the world's energy needs. Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, everybody is paying attention to this right now, and this support is coming from both sides of the aisle. Both the Biden and former Trump administrations are supporting this research, and scientists working in the field have told Newsweek that the power source now provides huge appeal across the political spectrum and could potentially be available by the end of the next decade. Stephen Crowley is the director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, a U.S. Department of Energy lab that researches nuclear fusion, and he says there is considerable interest in the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House in accelerating fusion. And he says possibly by the end of the 2030s, this could be a reality. As Nathaniel Ferraro, another research physicist at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, told Newsweek, fusion seems to be something that appeals broadly to both political parties. It could provide firm power for manufacturing in urban centers and is safe, carbon-free, and environmentally sustainable. Now, that firm is a word that you might not be familiar with, but it's the idea of a power source that doesn't depend on what's happening around it in the environment. Wind, for example, and solar are not considered firm sources because they depend on, obviously, the rushing of the wind and the shining of the sun, which can be impeded for various reasons. Firm sources are ones that can be switched on and off to balance renewables when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And given the fact that it requires almost no inputs, I mean, it can be made out of seawater, for goodness sakes, and the output is helium, which we can use that. The possibility of an entire energy grid built around solar panels and wind power and fusion is certainly very appealing. The challenge is that because fusion is so much of a longer term solution that it hasn't been drawing as much of the research dollars as, for example, solar, which is more of a right now solution. But like many other areas of research, both the Trump and Biden administrations were and are looking to leverage private investment in fusion research as a way to accelerate the national program. And this has been reflected in an increase in funding the public-private partnership programs. As Sally Benson, the deputy director for energy at the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House said back in March, the amount of fusion fuel that could fill a bathtub holds as much energy as all the oil Russia produces each day, about 10 million barrels. And that's why this is something that scientists have been working on for more than 70 years. This is genuinely science fiction kind of stuff to the point that we wouldn't even need flux capacitors anymore. Turning now to Israel, where a team of archaeologists led by Mordecai Aviam and Stephen Notley think they may have discovered the original birthplace, in fact, the house in which the disciples Peter and Andrew were born. 
Now, the chain of evidence leading them to this conclusion is, as you would expect for something going back over 2,000 years, a little bit interesting. What they have found is a large Greek inscription at a basilica of the Byzantine era, so this is about 1,200 years old, and the inscription refers to Constantine, the servant of Christ, as the donor of the site, and there's also an intercession or prayer naming St. Peter the chief and commander of the heavenly apostles. Now, the reason that's significant is that Constantine, of course, emperor of Rome in the early 300s, was the first Christian ruler of the empire, and the inscription itself is framed by a round medallion that's part of a much larger mosaic floor that has tiles called tesserae that were once part of the sacristy of the church. And the reason for the mention of Peter being important is because that indicates some special association of the basilica to him, possibly that it was dedicated to him. Now, there's some controversy here because historically Byzantine Christian tradition has identified Peter's home as being in Bethsaida, where this research site is, not in Capernaum, as people often think today, and this sort of fits with the idea that it would have been his house. The archaeologists are calling it the Church of the Apostles, and what their dig is doing is looking for any layer in the archaeological history that would come from the first century, which would do a better job of giving it candidacy as being the identification of the biblical Bethsaida. Now, the transitional evidence to point us toward even looking for something like this comes from Bishop Willibald of Eichstadt in the 8th century. He was a Catholic churchman who had written while traveling in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that he stayed overnight at a place that he was told was Bethsaida, from which Peter and Andrew came, and now that there was a church, again in the 8th century, that was over where their house had been. So the rough time frames and the historical record all seem to match up. There are Roman artifacts at the site that seem to fit with what Flavius Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, had written during the 1st century that the village of Bethsaida became a Roman town bearing the name Julius. So putting all of these pieces together, they believe that they've got the location of the original home of Peter and Andrew and would seem to explain why the church had been built in that location. As you may know, it was a common practice to build churches on the sites considered holy in that area. For example, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is built on the site that's believed to be where the crucifixion took place and also encompassing the area of the tomb of the resurrection, as well as a slab of marble upon which Jesus' body was claimed to have laid just after he was removed from the cross. So for historians, archaeologists, and certainly religious people around the world, this is a fairly significant discovery. And finally, from the looking forward to the future, but not too far in the future file, it is almost fall, and that means we are almost ready to start indulging in pumpkin spice everything. Yes, the widely beloved and sometimes mocked, perhaps despised, flavor that is the signal of the arrival of autumn started in Starbucks in 2003, according to legend by Peter Dukes, the director of the Espresso Americas for Starbucks. Basically, a bunch of taste developers sat around in the liquid lab, swallowing coffee with pumpkin pie in their mouths in an effort to create the perfect fall flavors. Whether they got there or not, and whether you celebrate this or not, well, these are matters of contention. But in the end, they developed pumpkin spice sauce with cinnamon, clove, and nutmeg, and that recipe hasn't changed since. Well, obviously, Starbucks is not the only place that uses this anymore. In fact, it's everywhere. I mean, it seems like the tentacles of this development have yet to find their outer reaches. I'm still waiting for the day when we have pumpkin spice potato chips and hamburgers, and I'm sure we're not far off. Well, now you have an opportunity to capitalize on, presumably, your love of this flavor, and you can become a taste researcher for an organization called Pour Moi. That's P-O-U-R-M-O-I, like the French, as in pour me, but pour as in drinks. 
Because what they're looking for is somebody who is going to go around to popular coffee chains and taste test all of the pumpkin spice offerings and review them in a way to kind of rank and guide consumers to what they might enjoy the most. If you think this might be for you, obviously you've got to be a fan of the flavor and you will then be evaluating each of the offerings for their sweetness levels, their flavor, their coziness, the smell, and additional bonuses like cream or sprinkles or gingerbread or potato chips. I'm just suggesting here, not too loudly or too often, but you know, potato chips. And in return, you're going to get $350 in addition to an expense account that'll cover the cost of all the drinks, which truth be told is probably going to be more than $350. So if you think this might be for you, Pour Moi said that the only requirements for the job are having a solid enthusiasm for autumn, a penchant for pumpkins, lots of experience in drinking pumpkin spice lattes, and the ability to get to and from a range of different coffee shops. And if you think that's you, there's a link to the application in the article about this topic at Newsweek.com. However, I have just one word of warning for you. Many times in life, you might think about the beautiful situation where you get paid to do something you love. Sometimes what you find is that getting paid for it and then having to do it a lot for that money mm, makes it not quite as sweet as you expected. Case in point, 30 years ago, for about five years in college, I worked as a server at the Olive Garden. I have not had a breadstick since. That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. And consider subscribing to our digital and print editions of Newsweek if you haven't already. Hit the five-star review before you go, because this is the best pumpkin spice latte podcast in the known universe. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to the Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.